0: Let me go! Do you mind if I say I think you're a swell person? Hmm? You're very beautiful. So beautiful, I'm going to make you immortal. Hey, where's the girl? Well, you'll never see her again. I'll give you three to tell me where she is. I'm not kidding! If you were to kill me, you're leaving at large a monster that only I can control.
1: to episode 73 of The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Joy Gwynn. And here tonight we're back to our, uh, not quite long-running yet, but our, <laughs> our, our short-running, going-to-be-long-running series of uh, shows on the Universal Horror Films of the 1940s. A period of Universal Horror that we feel doesn't get quite the attention it deserves. Right. And so, we're going through the film's Put out by Universal <laughs> Studios in that uh, in that decade, film by film, <laughs> in the order they were released, <laughs> and uh, it's taking a while, folks. Yeah, I want you to know
2: <laughs> this is only show number four in this series.
1: So, and uh, we are not out of 1940
2: yet. <laughs> Regardless of what these films were thought of, they were they certainly were or certainly were prolific. Yes, uh, this,
1: yes. It, well, I mean, Universal Studios, it was a yeah, machine, man. Was, they were really pumping them out. Mm-hmm. I mean, we want to thank you for being here. And uh, this this week, we're really thrilled. This week, huh, this month, we're really yeah. thrilled to be able to get to uh, one of my favorite of the 1940s universal horror films. We finally get to The Mummy's Hand. Not going to hide my love of this film. I do I do think the world of it. I think it's great. Uh, I know that Troy hates it because... <laughs> He's an irrational.
2: I do not. Mummy hating I do not. Oh, you
1: don't hate. You don't hate it. No, oh, no, 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 okay, no. I know. And our yeah,
2: listen, our listeners are probably going to be uh, <laughs> are probably salivating for this episode because they think that I'm just going to be like ragging on your love of mummies, and I do still, uh, no pun intended, do do rag a bit on your your love of mummies. Uh, no, just because again, as I've said before, mummies, the mummy is probably my one of my less least favorite. Of the classic monster, you know, icons. Heretic. Uh, yes. I, I just 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 heretic. doesn't just didn't didn't capture my imagination as a, as a, as a kid. You know, I never pretended I think to be the mummy. You know, like a like I ran around being vampires and, and Dracula's. It's, and, it's, and it's the first time. And, it's
1: the first time I wanted to know if perhaps where you lived there was mercury in the water. I, didn't, <laughs> I, I wasn't sure, and and now now mm-hmm. I want I want some I want some blood tests run so.
2: But I'm sure that my uh, opinion of this movie is not going to be as high as yours. But at the same time, I can watch these films. I do, I do find them fun. Um, you know, it, it's I don't, I don't, I don't loathe them by any means. I, they probably are the films that maybe have a lot of the, the things that the people who don't like these 40s I mean, Universal films kind of yeah. use as as the poster child, poster children for the, their dislike of. But I and I and I think that's not really fair, you know, because I think there are things to like about these films, but, uh, but yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm not here if not to praise, I'm not here to bury it either. So, you know, we'll just, uh, uh, we'll, (laughs) well, to, to
1: be clear. I mean, you're right. I think this movie does set up, you know, because there are three sequels to this, I think mm-hmm. this film does set in place a lot of the things that people who want to criticize the '40s output of Universal Studios. This is this is a genesis point. I think mm-hmm. the other the other often criticized areas would be both of the House films: House of Frankenstein, and House of Dracula. Yeah. yeah. Those, uh, I think the, those films in particular are the ones that get singled out for a lot of criticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and don't get me wrong, some of that criticism is warranted, but at the same time. Um, I mean, you know, everybody can point to the Wolfman and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein as, you know, stand up films. And in mm-hmm. in the past couple of decades I, I, I have noticed that a lot of people even stand up and start uh, doing a lot of defending of Son of Dracula, which I think is
3: mm-hmm. I th-
1: which I think is a, a good mm-hmm. a good idea. Mm-hmm. But um, as formulaic as this quartet of mummy films became I still find great joy in them, and I think that part of what I love about them, and this is something we'll get into as we get into the, into the, uh, the quirkier sequels to this film, is that uh, it is that formula, it is that formulaic mm-hmm. nature that mm-hmm. makes these films rather uh, happy viewing experiences, I guess you'd say, for me. Mm-hmm. I think that that's, what, that's mm-hmm. one of the things about them that I think mm-hmm. is so wonderful, is that unlike my much-beloved 1932 film with Boris Karloff, The original Mummy film from Universal, I think that that is a very thoughtful, atmospheric, brooding, uh, romantic, in the kind of highest sense of the term word, Uh, in the the highest sense of that word, I I think that's what that that movie is, and I love it. But if you want to see, uh, you know, mummies, like, strangling people and, Mm -hmm. and stuff like that, these are your films.
2: Well, as we will demonstrate, I think, over the course of this show... While most people probably use as an, a touchstone example of why they don't like the 40s mummies films to talk about how much better the 32 one is, yes, it's a better film, but I can tell you right now, this series in the 40s is where we get our mummy lore from, and all the all the oh, films yeah. that came after it, you know, these are the films that set that, you yeah. know, set that pattern and set that formula.
1: I mean, because I, I absolutely love the Karloff film from 32, I think it's wonderful. But it's
2: barely a mummy movie. It's not it's, really yeah. a mummy movie.
1: <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, you know, technically a mummy movie, but. In a lot of ways, I mean I'm not the first to say this, in a lot of ways that thirty two film is kind of a kind of a remake of their Dracula movie. Yes, it is.
2: And, and and there's very little there's there's almost no mummy lore in the movie because he's not a mummy for more than just that opening scene. Now that opening scene is one of the greatest sequences in all universal yeah. films, but once it's past that, you know, we, we don't get any more of the most of the the rules quote unquote that govern yeah. mummy stories don't come from that film because we're not really given any, you know, as far as what, you know, what are the mummy's weaknesses, what controls them all this because he's not, for one thing, he's not being controlled. That right. in itself sets it totally apart from your standard mummy film which is normally the mummy being controlled by somebody else or bent on vengeance because of some sort of curse that's broken or whatever, you know, whereas, whereas Karloff is very much in control of whatever he's doing yeah. in that first he's, film.
1: Well, he, he's a master manipulator in exactly. that film and that's one of yeah. the, the kind of intriguing things about the way that film is played. Mm-hmm. But, you have brought up a point that I wanted to get to uh, in this discussion, and I think it's a good thing to bring it up before we get into the mm-hmm. meat of discussing mm-hmm. the plot of this film, which is mm-hmm. that it is these 1940s universal horror films mm-hmm. that set in place, as you said, mm-hmm. not just the mummy lore mm-hmm. that then gets picked up and used by Hammer and by a dozen other film producers through, you know, throughout mm-hmm. the rest of the 20th century, mm-hmm. but... The 1940s universal horror films are also where we get... I mean, don't forget, this is where we get our werewolf lore.
2: Yes, exactly. Okay? Exactly.
1: It's Kurt Siadamak's script for Mm -hmm. the Wolfman that Mm -hmm. gives us all of the Wolfman stuff that we now take as, you know, mythic gospel to a large degree. Mm -hmm. Absolutely right. remember, all of this mythology, all this monster mythology was built out of these 1940s universal horror films. Mm -hmm. And all these things that are you know tropes that have been run into the mm-hmm. ground ideas that have been used and reused and mm-hmm. overused are mm-hmm. built in that is not in these 1940s films mm-hmm. and i think that to uh, step away from that or to ignore that or to not even think about that as an aspect of why these films should be paid attention to in a much closer way mm-hmm. ignore some things that are not just significant but i think incredibly important yes also Mm-hmm. This is the this is the 1940s Universal horror film series that gave us the first great horror comedy mashup. Yeah, I mean, you know, Abbott Costello meets yeah. Frankenstein. I mean, yeah. Which it, I,
2: I think is still my favorite horror comedy. You know, right, <laughs> so right. I love it.
1: I would even argue, although it was not the first, uh, these were these are not the first examples of uh, a horror anthology film. The house, the two house films, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula. Mm-hmm. Also, I think the, the portmanteau films, the, the, you know, the anthology films that became a big thing in the mm-hmm. 60s and 70s owe oh, well, a huge debt to those two films because that's I agree. Yeah. really where that was proven out as a, uh, mm-hmm. as a, as a way of doing these, mm-hmm. these stories. That, because they're very episodic, those yeah, movies. They're... Right, right, right. So, no, I'm never going to claim that the 40s output is superior to the 30s output, mm-hmm. but I think that there's always been for decades – an attempt to uh downplay them because, admittedly, mm-hmm. these films were aimed primarily at a younger audience. Mm-hmm. Uh these were mm-hmm. not um mm-hmm. you know, especially post-code, post code, mm-hmm. post like thirty four. Uh we're talking about um not being able to to go quite so adult mm-hmm. you know, quote unquote yeah. adult yeah. in your storytelling mm-hmm. and in your in your themes. So uh yeah, they become mm-hmm aimed much more during the war years at a younger audience mm-hmm. but that has its charms as well and as anybody who's been in any any creative endeavor can tell you once you know where the guardrails are and once you know what restrictions are placed upon you mm-hmm. that really can if you're if you're good mm-hmm. can form your creative task into something much more interesting because you know you've got to fit it in with within certain parameters and mm-hmm. so i think that uh, that's why When you have restrictions, when you have the restrictions that these films were made under uh, that were not not the same as when they were making these movies in the 30s, uh, you get some different, but not necessarily worse, concepts, ideas, stories, and I think that uh, there's a lot to be said for the 40s, and I think that as we continue this series, I will just keep saying them
2: yeah people uh, will often point to the brevity of these films as a sign of how little universal thought of them you know uh, the fact that most of them are barely over an hour, but I think that that made them that much more digestible for children growing yeah. you know kids you know who grew up to be the monster kids who you know monster fans who would then begin to tell new stories with what they learned and grew up on and loved from the forties films
1: yeah
2: as more than more than the thirties films
1: and um uh, well. As for, as to the brevity, I think uh, I, we've got some interesting things that got clipped out of this movie in particular yeah. that I can't wait to talk about. But we'll we'll, mm-hmm. we'll get to that.
2: Um, brevity is not something we do here on the bloody Pit, as <laughs> as all listeners will know. <laughs>
1: no, no, no. Shutting us up is sometimes. I th- thank God that you out there listening have the ability to hit the pause or the stop button. <laughs> yeah, because we'll just to keep a babbling. Yep. And yep, a babbling. Yes, we will. And a babbling. But we'll uh, take a quick break. And then come back, and we will just dive headlong into a uh, discussion, pl- starting with a plot synopsis mm-hmm. of uh, 1940s The Mummy's Hand. I am Dr.
4: Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game.
1: My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love.
4: We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen, and that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just $2, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link.
0: I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again, and remember, the Chamber is always waiting for its next victim.
3: There are a lot of podcasts out there that do science
2: fiction, horror and fantasy movies. But how many of them are done by somebody who's been watching this shit for half a century? Hi, my name's Terry Frost and I do the Martian Driving Podcast, a podcast where I look at silent films all the way through to movies from the second decade of the 21st century. I look at fantasy, horror and science fiction and talk about them sometimes with the guests sometimes by myself but always with an eye to the stuff that maybe has slipped off your radar if it was ever on your radar so go to com or type martian drive in podcast into itunes and enjoy a bit of decent genre talk and keep watching the skies
0: for who shall defile the temples of the ancient gods a cruel and violent death shall be his fate, and never shall his soul find rest unto eternity. Such is the curse of Amonra, king of all the gods.
1: Terror that waited 3,000 years stalks the earth again. Huh. The Mummy's Hand, 1940. <laughs> Uh, uh, The film had an $80,000 budget. It was released on September 20th of 1940. We'll eventually get to 1941, I swear. (laughs) Eventually. (laughs) The joys of this film are uh, an odd combination of things. Because, yes, it is a mummy movie, which means Mm -hmm. it is a horror movie. But it is a little bit more than that in some strange ways. First of all, let's get one thing out of the way. Uh, This movie is not a sequel to the 1932 Boris Karloff mm-hmm. film, The Mummy. Although this movie does use, uh, yeah. it kind of steals, it steals yeah. footage mm-hmm. from the 1932 film. Uh, it is not a sequel. Mm-hmm. It is, matter of fact, is a completely different story. It has nothing to do mm-hmm. with the original film.
2: I've seen it called actually the first reboot in Hollywood history. And I realized, thinking about, oh my gosh, that's, I mean, at least in horror, Hollywood horror history. And when I saw that, I thought, oh wow, that's, that's actually kind of true. <laughs> you know, the first
1: That's one way to look at it. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's true. But with this film, what we have is, uh, it's it's eight years after Mm -hmm. the the 32 film. It stands on its own two feet, and I don't think anybody who uh, has seen it will really say anything different to that effect. Separating itself from the 1930 film, 1932 film completely, The Mummy's Hand doesn't aim to create a dark atmosphere or anything Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't play around with any kind of doomed romance. It tries to make a thriller with a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of boy's adventure with an Egyptian monster in it. Mm. That's what The Mummy's Hand is. Uh, The pace is brisk, and the tone is primarily light and fun. Uh, There's just enough creepy stuff to give the monster gravitas and to make him a convincing threat. Uh, I kind of see uh, our two main hero characters, Banning and Babe, as the 1940s... Versions of uh, Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. In other words, considering that Indiana Jones was a period set character whose adventures were taking place mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. '30s and '40s, maybe they're kind of Indiana Jones.
2: Well, and they're actually kind of a, a, a blueprint for Abbott and Costello and Abin Costello meet Frankenstein, and yeah. also an and Costello even more meet the Mummy. Uh, when you look at that, and the, it's actually kind of you know they're you can be seen true. as those could be seen as more extreme versions of these characters.
1: Uh, the two of them, Banning and Babe, are really kind of adventure archaeologists who uh, encounter a bit more than they bargained for. Yeah. A lot of this wouldn't work if it wasn't for the way these two actors play these two characters.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the two, our two heroes, Banning, Banning and Babe, which is just how I'll refer to them because I like the idea of mm-hmm. BB, Banning yeah. and Babe. I think that they, the Dick, Dick Ferran and...
2: Oh, Ford, Wallace Ford.
1: Right, Wallace Ford. How did I have a brain fart like that?
2: <laughs> I did
3: too.
1: <laughs> there for a moment. Uh, but uh, but Ferran and Ford are, have great chemistry on screen. And honestly, uh, whether they knew each other or not before this movie, I really don't know. But honestly, their chemistry on screen is effortless. They really seem to have gotten along well on this. And as a matter of fact, all the stories that you hear from people who made this film... Is that they had a great time making it. What, what yeah. regardless of what they may have thought of the finished product or even mm-hmm. the concept of the of the project to begin with, they had a good time making the film.
2: Yeah, and I would actually uh, credit Wallace Ford with in his performance um, because comic relief can be a really dodgy prospect in a lot of uh, yeah. horror films. And I know not everybody agrees with me on this, but I actually find. His comic relief to be much more tolerable than your average than than these things normally turned out, you know. To be, I find him much more palatable and and, and yeah. actually enjoyable uh, than say God help us, you know, O'Connor or whatever. <laughs> so, but she's but 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 in general, you know, it can always be tough to to work comic relief into these kind oh, of yeah. films. But I, I think Wallace Ford does it for the most part. Doesn't bother me in this film. I think he does it well, and 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 I think that they don't. The scenes are not excruciating to set through like sometimes that well, can be. Well, he's
1: not an unbelievable character. Right. I think right. that's what makes it work because uh, that's something that I'm always amazed when I go back to watch this film again. Is that it's Babe who like puts a bullet in that scumbag?
3: Yeah,
1: <laughs> you know near near the end of the film, he's the one mm-hmm. wielding a gun and yeah. shooting people down who are trying to kill them.
2: And I liked. Light- I personally like that revelation about the character. You, know, you can take it another way and look at it and say, like, you know, that it's out of left field compared to what they've set up with the character. But I like that fact because, for one thing, it shows you, like, why he and Bannon would, you, you know, why Bannon would keep him around. In other words, why they would still work together because you realize, okay, Babe's not totally useless, you know. there's actually know, he's not. Yeah. And, and that's I like that. I like the fact that it kind of gives it that the last of the film is, like, actually, Babe's the one who does the more dynamic, most of the more dynamic things than Bannon does at the yep. end of the film.
1: Well, that's one of the good thing, things about this movie is that all the main characters are they're likable. Man, I mean, mm-hmm. I, you, yeah. you like yeah, these folks. I yeah. mean, even all the relationships seem natural and lived in. They're believable mm-hmm. characters, and their interactions mm-hmm. make sense. Yeah. Uh, you, when you have that initial antagonism between uh, uh, the the daughter character and Banning because she thinks that mm-hmm. he's trying to take advantage of her father. Mm-hmm. Um, That is, I mean, she carries that for a while until there's enough evidence in front of her own eyes that this guy is not some scumbag trying to rip her father off, Mm -hmm. and uh, that plays as believable. That plays as a natural outgrowth of having, you know, people spending a lot of time together, trying to, Mm -hmm. you know, trying Mm to, you know, complete a a huge and arduous project. So that's really neat.
2: It also sets up. It also helps with not jumping too far ahead here, not giving anything away, but it also. But Our belief in these characters then helps also set up things that they do in the sequel, uh, which we won't talk about now, but it gives them more weight, things that happen in the the follow-up film.
1: This is true. This is true. Well, let's go ahead and dive into uh, the plot synopsis. And once again, we're just stealing the plot synopsis straight out from the fantastic book, Universal Horrors. A book that if you don't own, you probably should go yes, ahead should. and get you, you a copy. It's well worth your time. Very much so. It'll also tell you what the order of the films are that we're going to be doing in, <laughs> in, in this series of podcasts. So. <clears throat> the Mummy's Hand commences with a sacred indoctrination. Answering a summons, Andohib, Andohib who's played by George Zuko, so you know he's evil.
3: Uh,
1: <laughs> he's, an, he's a noted Egy- Egyptologist. Uh, Egyptologist, and a member of the secret religious sect of Karnak. He arrives at the Temple of Karnak on the Hill of the Seven Jackals. The resident high priest, whose life is rapidly ebbing away, passes on to his successor a secret guarded for centuries by their royal group. 3,000 years ago, the Princess Ananka, daughter of King Am- King name i'm not going to try to pronounce because i can't remember <laughs> uh, anyway princess anaka grew ill and died she was worshipped by Karis, who's uh, later played by tim well tom tyler, tom tyler so right. we get flashbacks of this she was worshipped by Karis, a prince of the royal house during the anger of the ancient guards Karis snatched a quantity of forbidden tana leaves with a brew distilled from the leaves, Karras knew he could bring his beloved Ananka back to life. But before the sacrilegious act could be consummated, Karras was seized by the palace guards. For the sin he had committed, he was condemned to be buried alive. First, his tongue was cut out so his protests wouldn't assail the ears of the gods. Now, see, here we have mm-hmm. our first real break with the previous film. Mm-hmm. Because although Kar- uh, Karloff's character was buried alive, mm-hmm. He got to keep his tongue, (laughs) which, you know, let's say that's a positive but it also is a really neat thing if you really don't have any uh, desire mm. to have the actor playing your monster speak dialogue you're sure he didn't have that
2: happen to him in the first one as, uh, no no no. remember because, because happens, he
1: talks quite a
2: bit now. yeah so he's got to write you know what I'm thinking of in Chris, Christopher Lee it happens to Christopher Lee so they got that from this in film, 1950 yes, exactly yes, yes.
1: once again you're, yes. you're, yeah, you're, you're, that's my own and, personal favorite mummy
2: movie actually is that one the hammer 1959 movie that's my
1: personal favorite mummy movie as well uh, there's much debate on what is the best versus the favorite. Uh, I Absolutely. would say the 59 yeah. is actually maybe the best and my favorite, but that's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. neither here nor there. I
2: wouldn't argue with that one. So.
1: Lots of people want to take up arms about the Karloff <laughs> film, and I understand. <laughs> Nevertheless. Mm. So Karis is seized uh, for his sins. He was uh, buried alive. His tongue was cut out so he couldn't insult the gods because, you know, mm-hmm. insulting mm-hmm. gods is what these no, guys are all about. No. Then, he was wrapped in gauze and buried in an unmarked grave. Later, his coffin was unearthed by the disciples of Ananka and sealed in a secret mountain location. Now, uh, Andohib, that's the George Zuko character, all I can ever think of him as is George Zuko. Yeah, I know, I know because that's all you have
2: to say, and he just, you know... Yeah, yeah, I have to know. say is George Zuko, and you know evil.
1: <laughs> well, anyway, to his amazement, the withered priest reveals that Karras never really died. That he still rests in his tomb, waiting to bring death to any who would defile Ananka's resting place. The priest turns over a supply of tana leaves to George Zuko, and the high priest then instructs him in how to brew the tana leaves to keep that damn mummy alive. Mm -hmm. Now, I think this is great because uh, you you brew three tana leaves during the cycle Mm -hmm. of the full moon and feed the fluid to Karis. Now,
2: several things about this. You go first.
1: <clears throat> let's, let's, yeah, hold on here. Okay. Those of you who've listened to our back catalog of shows known as the NashiCast, cast. Yes. will know that we spent a lot of years mm-hmm. carefully parsing the rules of lycanthropy as laid out in mm-hmm. the Wilder Martininsky films.
2: We've inscribed them into our own volumes uh, for yes, future use.
1: Tattooed onto our flesh. Yes. No, what we have here is we were always concerned and worried and kind of Weirded out by the odd rules put in place to keep either the monster alive,
3: mm-hmm.
1: uh, stuck in one place, trapped, or uh, to roam free to do whatever the hell he wants. Now, I'm pretty sure that this movie also mm-hmm. marks the start of that idea. Now, <laughs> Paul sent Jacinto Molina, of course, uh, was you know a well-known fan of these films. Mm-hmm. His favorite film of all time was Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, so... It's not much of a leap for him to take oh. the rather convoluted and complex and and needlessly ridiculous.
2: Oh, it's it's like uh, the instructions for the holy hand grenade of Antioch. You know, it's it's <laughs> yeah, and, and actually in my in my in my notes I actually wrote, did Paul Nashie write this ritual? <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> no, he just borrowed liberally from it. Oh, so. At any rate, what we have is three leaves mm. or just the normal. You do, mm. But you gotta, yeah, you yeah. got to put it under the yeah. full moon yeah. for, for some damn reason. you got to brew it under the full moon. But that keeps him alive. But no matter what you do, mm. no matter what you do, the priest tells him, hey, George Zuko, I see you evil. So yeah. here's what you don't do. Just if you don't want to do it, don't tell him. I, well,
2: again, in my notes I wrote, don't pull that red switch. This is the moment where the Iron Chef says, hey, do you guys want to spice... Yeah, you guys want to spice this up a little bit, wanna, you know, take this up a notch and then what he used to say, you wanna take this up a notch.
1: Oh Oh, anyway. So he tells him that Mm -hmm. if you brew nine leaves, nine tanna leaves Mm -hmm. and give that to the mummy, he'll become an uncontrollable monster Mm -hmm. that that that, that what, what was it, he, he describes it in an apocalyptic fashion, as if oh, yeah. this this uncontrollable monster would like possibly destroy the world.
2: Oh no, and it's something as you know, first, you're seeing this film and you're, it's the first time you're seeing it. You're like oh, I can't wait to see this, you know. And yet and, you never do. And yet you never do. We never get to know. <laughs> plus, <laughs> what the,
1: plus, just out of curiosity, mm-hmm. what would that look like?
2: I know. Would he, is he would he grow just like a giant, <laughs> you know, like Godzilla-sized <laughs> mummy? I mean, or what? what <laughs> K- just,
1: Kaiju Mummy <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, that's oh that's a movie I need. Uh, oh god, why doesn't that movie exist? Anyway. <laughs> so my question becomes, now here's the thing. Now mm-hmm. in this movie, in the dialogue if you listen, you'll notice that the idea seems to be if you if you give him this this enough of this fluid um eventually, you know like he will be completely mobile. In other words, he won't, he won't be limping around and his, mm. and his, and his arm will, you know, his, is his, his right arm, is it right arm or left arm? I can't remember.
3: Mm.
1: It won't be, um, useless to him anymore. Right. But that never happens and he's yeah, no. sucking
2: down Tana liquid like a crazy man. Well, he's basically an addict in this, which is, I thought, yeah. I thought it's very interesting that the mummy is basically an addicted creature in this, in this film. Um, <laughs>
1: It did make me wonder. There, it all makes me. It it kind of makes me wonder: is there a way to write this entire movie as a POV thing from just the mummy's Uh, point of view? That would be interesting. And then you could kind of, you know, in other words, just inside his head Mm. of why he is acting the way he's acting and what he thinks he can accomplish. Yeah. Because we're talking about somebody who's been able to, to like mull this over for Mm. three thousand mm-hmm. years that's a lot of time yeah yeah now all guys know that in that amount of time you can you know you can scratch yourself mm-hmm.
3: you
2: can
1: fart <laughs> you can do a lot of different stuff yeah but mostly you're just gonna think yeah and if you're sitting there with no tongue there's a lot of things you can't talk about mm-hmm. and it's like well i'm never gonna eat food again this sucks yeah I mean, all i can really do is drink yeah. no flavor no taste No. <laughs> I, this is just great I, what am i gonna do <laughs> so i think it'd be interesting if some quality writer out there wanted to take that task because God knows I couldn't do it. Mm. Nobody's ever going to do that. <laughs> Nobody's ever going to write the POV mummy's hand story. Anyway. anyway, anyway. So, I, like I said, I still would love to know what the the out-of-control, apocalyptic, monstrous mummy would look yeah. like. I would, I'd, I'd like to know.
2: And this is, am I right, that this is the also the origin of Tana Leaves? Is this the creation? Yes, it is. Because I didn't think it had any precedent in pulp fiction or in and certainly not in films or novels or any sort of literature literary precursor i think the tana leaves began with this film now the the
1: guys who wrote the script for this claimed that they came up with the tana leaves thing because tana leaves were something that were supposedly used in the embalming process okay so i wondered about
2: that they are something i
1: don't know i don't know i haven't checked the veracity of that simply Mm. because i want it to be true yeah yeah. <laughs> because it just yeah. makes me feel better if that's yeah. actually true and they just decided uh-huh. to expand on it and, and turn again turn it into something, you know, mm-hmm. universal monsterish, that's fine with me.
3: Mm-hmm. But
1: this is the introduction of Tannileaves. There's nothing like that in the thirty two film, and there's nothing like that mm-hmm. in any previous mummy film that I'm aware of, although there are not that many previous <laughs> I've seen a I've seen a silent mummy film.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: There's a lot less mummy action in it than you'd ever want. <laughs> but bet. nevertheless. This is the introduction of Tana leaves, yes, mm-hmm. and uh, Tana leaves become like the big go-to thing mm-hmm. that these that these films hinge on. These are these are the MacGuffin. These are the mm-hmm. thing that uh, mm-hmm. that are going to keep people kind of uh, hopping, trying to control things and trying to make mm-hmm. things happen or not happen. Mm-hmm. That's why I, always, I, I I wish I wish the Mummy had had ended up in one of the house films, mm-hmm. one way or another just as part of part of one of those monster rally films because then uh we would uh, you know I'm sure that the the whole we'd get to the town of leaves quick <laughs> you know, yeah. was, in one of the houses no, if, if there was like a you know a mm-hmm. you know house of uh, what would it be we had house of frankenstein we had house of dracula it would be uh well like house of the wolfman
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah we had to have that, and we would yeah. have
1: a mummy segment that uh-huh. would be fine oh, yeah.
2: So. yeah well that's what you know some of the mexican films did better than or not better but they did as a kid, they did more what you wanted to see. Yeah. Or, you know, as a kid, what you wanted to see even more of in the monster matches when they, the, some of the Mexican monster matches took even more of the... Yep. They did throw in the mummy and the creature in addition to the, you know, the the the, the other monsters, you know, to throw them all in these insane films that they made. So. <laughs>
1: Before it's over, the Gilman shows yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly uh. you're in the monster squad. <laughs> okay, okay, back to the films, all right. Um, but, it, but, but, it, but he, remember, he tells him, uh, that you got to brew the ten leaves during the cycle of the full moon. Feed the fluid to Karis, but under no circumstances <laughs> are you to feed Karis more than nine leaves.
2: He might as well have told him. And by the way, you can use all this to make yourself immortal, but you would never want to you do that. Already so already, I'm not right? worried about that. Yeah, but yeah.
1: do you know what do you think
2: of that weird the full moon thing there? Now is that an odd, like anticipation of the Wolfman? I know they had already made no, Werewolf no. of London. I, I but
1: well, no. The the full moon thing. Remember the. The full moon thing has always been something that uh, turns up again and again as parts of mythology, mm-hmm. parts of legends. And I think that that's just a natural thing. If you're going to invent mm-hmm. a bullshit mythology mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, try to come up with rules
3: mm-hmm.
1: uh, that you're going to have to have, you know, that are going to control how the characters, uh, you know, mm-hmm. face ad- adversity within a story of this type. Mm-hmm. Uh, throwing in, you know, the cycle of the full moon is mm-hmm. a good thing to default to. Remember, you know, we at this point, there's been no Wolfman movie. So, Has they been, not made Werewolf well, of no, London? No, No, Werewolf of London exists. But we haven't established oh, all those yeah, weird-ass no. werewolf rules mm-hmm. yet.
2: It just made me wonder if... if, if Because uh, I didn't know... I couldn't remember if in all the old werewolf legends if the full moon had anything to do with the old werewolf legends or if that was a curtsy automatic creation. Because there's so many things that he did create for the werewolf lore and I didn't know... I no, couldn't mean, remember if that fu- was part full of
1: moon th- the... No, the full moon thing, if memory serves, the full moon thing does precede... Mm-hmm. Kurtzman.
2: Okay, because so, I couldn't because I was yeah. wondering if Sumatamac got the idea remember, from this b- remember film. Remember the, yeah.
1: the, the, the Remember mm-hmm. in Werewolf of London,
3: mm-hmm.
2: the
1: moon is a problem as well. That's true. So okay. the lunar so, cycle. Yeah. So the lunar is cycle has, that... as far as I know, the lunar cycle has always played into lycanthropy tales. Mm-hmm.
2: You're probably right. Um,
1: so that that's just fine, and I think that mm-hmm. that aspect, even if it didn't exist in any other legend mm-hmm. or um, mm-hmm. you know piece of mythology or monster tale including the cycle of the full moon they may have just rooked that in um, as a way to uh, create some kind of obvious cycle for these things in other yeah. words mm. this has to be done by this priest 12 times a year
3: mm. so
1: that has that that's what has mm. to happen is you've got those three days every month where you can go and do this and the mm. mummy will still you know the mummy will still exist and be you know, ready to wreak vengeance upon anyone who dares to defile the tomb.
2: So, and it conveniently gives you a chance for your breaks for your human characters to not be threatened, you know, to right. not be in danger, to do things with them, you know,
1: yeah. you know, as
2: an excuse to why the mummy just can't do everything in one, you know, and, it, uh, all at once.
1: Which, you know, which is which also harkens back to all the things that we have that I love about monster mythology in the first place. I mean, with vampires... You're safe in the daytime.
3: Yeah, yeah. With,
1: you know, uh, with, with mummies, mm-hmm. you know, they, it, it seems that they're really only going to be moving around when you can feed them, you mm-hmm. know, the juice from tanna leaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frankenstein's monster, you're just dead.
2: So. <laughs> if you got it, if you got a torch in your hand, you can probably keep him back maybe for a little keep while. Him, yeah,
1: maybe okay. maybe back him off and yeah. whatever.
2: Forget the, the violin. You, can, you know, he likes violins. So he likes music.
1: So. <laughs> if you can get far enough away from the Black Lagoon, the gold is not going to get There you, you go. But. The uh, so the the, the lunar cycle. I just I just think it's something they they pulled in as a, as a convenient mm. way. I think I think it solves a, a number of problems for them yeah. by giving a kind of uh, it's it's a detail that lends a lot of extra weight to mm. the kind yeah. of you know the kind Things of like mythology that. they're building around these monsters. So that's mm-hmm. I think that's probably why that's there. Of course i could be wrong and if i am wrong please someone write in and tell me i'm wrong <laughs> i've no problem with that.
2: and <laughs> you take that very well because it happens so often it happens
1: know? pretty <laughs> often i have to take it well <laughs> I'm, I'm wrong often enough to know that i probably suck
0: look <laughs> deep into the waters of car behold over three thousand years ago the princess Sananka died but she was buried with all the ceremony due her exalted station ananka's father king amenophis bid her a last farewell and thus the princess ananka was placed in a tomb Caris, a prince of the royal house, who loved Ananka, looked on in grief. His devotion was so great that he refused to believe that she was lost to him forever. Charis broke into the altar room of Isis to steal the secret of eternal life from its hiding place. With that, he knew he could bring Ananka back to life. Daring the anger of the ancient gods, he stole the forbidden tana leaves.
1: And so with his mission complete, the, uh, the old holy man croaks off uh, right on cue, I yeah.
2: would say. Mm-hmm.
1: And then uh, we have the rest of the story beginning. Mm-hmm.
3: So
1: we uh, shift to Cairo, uh, to, a, to a bazaar there in Cairo, and we meet Steve Banning, played by Dick Ferran, who's an accomplished young archaeologist who has recently fallen on hard times. In this bazaar, he discovers a piece of pottery which bears a clue to the location of Ananka's tomb. He and his doubting sidekick, Babe Jensen, that's Wallace Ford, Mm -hmm. uh, take this find to Dr. Dr. Petrie of the Cairo Museum. The exuberant professor verifies that the pottery is authentic, but insists on conferring with a colleague for a third opinion. Petrie's associate is none other than andoheb That would be George Zuko. Mm -hmm. The scientist dismisses the relic as a worthless imitation. According to Zuko... Two expeditions had already penetrated that forbidden region, and they were never heard from again. Which would make me think <laughs> something was up. Yeah. But he's presenting that information <laughs> yeah. to try to keep them from being curious enough to go there. Yeah. He don't know American archaeologist no, adventurers. Re- he really very doesn't. Well. Uh, Steve isn't discouraged. And with the financial backing of a Brooklyn magician named Sylvani. Played, played by Cecil
2: Kellaway. We love Cecil Kellaway. He's awesome yeah, in this man. too. He's just He's, he's great. so
1: great. Anyway, Steve Bannon organizes an expedition into the desert with Sylvani's uh, money. Now, before we advance past this, let's talk a little bit about how much I enjoy watching Babe Jensen, Walsworth's mm-hmm. uh, character. Who Mm. is dispirited because we they've spent 75 bucks of the Mm -hmm. only 84 bucks that they have left to their names to buy this thing that Mm -hmm. they're then told is bullshit. Yeah. His buddy says, No, 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 this Mm -hmm. is real. Mm -hmm. We're gonna do this. Mm -hmm. And he stays with him. Yeah. And then the next time we see him, he's in a bar cadging drinks and tricking the bartender out of drinks Mm -hmm. with you know sleight of hand stuff. And in other words, is, is everything we see from Babe just going to be something where I go, I love this guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is cool. I <laughs> like this. But this is where we meet Silvani. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Babe tries to take this fellow who uh, is obviously a, a fellow American, mm-hmm. uh, take take him for a couple of bucks so that they can get some mm-hmm. drinks there while, while at the bar, while his buddy, uh, Steve mm-hmm. Banning, tries to inform him, I think I know who this guy is. Mm-hmm. I think he's a stage magician. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. Babe won't listen. And then gets taken to the farm by mm-hmm. Sylvani. Yeah. But who's such a kind-hearted and funny guy, he's not really going to try to screw these people over. Yeah. And turns it into something fun, and that's when the deal gets struck. These people get to know each other. They tell him their, they tell him what the situation is, and he buys it hook, line, and sinker. Now, his daughter, Sylvani's mm-hmm. daughter,
3: mm-hmm.
1: played by Peggy Moran, is uh, correct. Her name is Marta. And she's correct in her reaction when she learns of this, because... I love this. She doesn't just learn of this from her father. Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) Good old George Zuko.
1: George Zuko has uh, uh, underlings
2: that
1: that he's using to keep an eye on these two brash Americans Mm -hmm. who just might go out there into the desert Mm -hmm. and try to find Anaka's Mm -hmm. tomb. Right. And uh, one of these reports back to him and then Zuko himself goes to Marta, Peggy Moran's character, and tells her, hey, listen, Mm -hmm. there are people who try to who uh, try to take people's money? They they take advantage of people. Mm-hmm. They 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 take advantage of the fact that they're greedy and they think that they can, mm-hmm. you know, put up some money, finance a trip into the desert, yeah. find a tomb, all these riches and gold. And of course, all they're really doing is, you know, stealing the money from people. Mm-hmm. This is, we, I'm afraid, unfortunately, that your father has fallen for this. And you might want to be aware of this and put a stop to it because I know you're on your way. And you guys are on your way home here. Yeah. And Zuko exits, she gets all hacked off about it, her father returns to the returns to their uh, hotel room, tells her that...
2: He's very plastered, oh, apparently he's, they've he's, been living it up there yeah, with...
1: He's, uh, uh, he's, well, don't forget, they had, they had yeah, a bar they, fight. Oh yeah,
2: they had a bar fight and, and got drunk too. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I
1: mean, a lot of drinking and then a bar fight. It's like, <laughs> are, we, are we in a B-Western or are we in Egypt? I don't know. <laughs> so... Her father comes home, a little beat up, a lot drunk. Mm-hmm. tells tells her, "Hey, I just handed all our money off to these guys, <laughs> and we're going and we're going out to the desert to hunt for the tomb of some long dead Egyptian princess. It's awesome." <laughs> and of course, she's like, "She would I think she would have believed this anyway, but with yeah. the added extra information uh, given to her by Zuko's character, boom, yeah. this woman is hacked off. And here we have one of the few things in the movie that I actually." That's in the movie that I don't like. Mm-hmm. It appears to me that in the edit of the film, they decided they really needed to find a way to soften the next sequence of events. Because mm-hmm. what Peggy Moran's character of Marta does is she's so hacked off, she grabs a gun, a handgun, mm-hmm. and goes to find Bannon and Babe mm-hmm. with the idea of getting the money back. Mm-hmm. But what they do in that scene is they cut away from... You can't see her... You're still in the hotel room. You can't see her, and she says, "I'll get those guys with my trusty trick pistol." And you
2: notice her voice. Her mouth does not move. It's an overdub. It's an yes. overdub. It's an overdub.
1: It's an overdub line done much yeah. after the fact. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. They yeah. were not not want to imply that she might actually be carrying a loaded. Weapon, because, yes. But
1: she is, she carrying, is carrying a loaded, a loaded weapon, weapon because, because she, she blows, then goes to that room yeah. and shoots holes in the freaking bathroom door to prove to them, <laughs> I'm willing to put a bullet in your ass.
2: Yeah, that's not a trick gun. That is not
1: a trick gun. <laughs> yeah. Okay? So... Why, I mean, I yeah. de- why they thought, okay, no, I maybe, think they, maybe they, maybe they. I think they were trying to soften it.
2: I absolutely agree. I mean, the Hayes office is very much controlled control by this point. You know, the censors, the there were some but, really, but, strange, but, but it, because but, of the 30s films. <laughs> I, I,
1: I agree with you, but that seems like something that would have gotten taken care of at script level. Because remember, these scripts mm. got submitted to the Hayes office yeah. and okayed. So by the time they filmed it, yeah. that, that you know a lot of eyes no, have right. already it's been a, on that script. Yeah. So, Something happened. Somebody got cold feet mm-hmm. at the last minute and they decided to, to dub that line into the movie mm-hmm. to pretend that she's not putting bullet holes through that yeah. bathroom. Which we see. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the whole point of the scene is that is that Steve Bannon in the bathroom is looking at it and going, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things in the movie that I wish were not in the movie.
2: Mm-hmm. I would
1: love to be able to extract
2: uh, yeah. that line of dialogue yeah. mm-hmm.
1: because it's... It 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 doesn't fit, and it's silly, and it's immediately proven to be what it is, which is Mm. somebody trying to find a way to cover their ass because Mm. holy God, this woman is firing a (laughs) handgun at these other characters. Yeah.
0: When will you grow up? First, it was a dry oil well. Then it was a skin lotion to make everybody beautiful. Well, it did turn out to be good for Mauds. Received of Tim Sullivan $2,000 to finance a search for the tomb of Ananka. In return, Tim Sullivan will share as a third partner in the venture. Signed, Steve Banning. Well, are yeah, honey. See? Everything's quite okay. <laughs> the, oh, you've given those crooks every cent we had in the world. No, darling. No. They're not crooks, honey. Not those fellas. Where do they live? Where do they live? Uh, oh. Where do they live? Where do they live? Uh, uh, through the window? Into the... I don't
3: know.
0: I mean you gave them all this money and you don't even know where they live? Oh, well, that's just fine. Hm. Cairo Hotel. I'll fix them with my trick revolver. Hey, you... What are you going to do with that? You don't
1: know how to deal with these crooks. I do. Now, Martha. 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 So she demands that they give the money back. Mm -hmm. Steve Banning says, well, it's a a (laughs) little late. I just Mm -hmm. spent all the money getting everything ready for this expedition. Mm -hmm. She insists that she doesn't believe him. He says, look, you can go Mm -hmm. go check. (laughs) We're doing this. So... She insists, well, if this is if this is what you're doing with my father's money, with our money, then guess what? My father and I are going on this expedition with you to guard our investment. So they accompany uh, the two of them on their quest to uh, uncover Anka's tomb. They, they, they describe Peggy Moran's character as a Sylvanis cautiously cynical daughter,
3: <laughs>
1: which is a good way to put it. Yeah. Uh, unbeknownst to them, though, of course, they've hired a bunch of you know diggers and, and carriers and all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff, and they've next time we see them, they've set up camp out in the desert. Unbeknownst to them, uh, George Zuko's character and his underling, that's the main underling who's mm-hmm. uh, lurking around mm-hmm. all the time, mm-hmm. are several steps ahead of, the, ahead of them, anticipating every move. Now, while they're digging away, they've been at it for a few weeks and they haven't had any luck, but a freak explosion uncovers a sealed entrance in the side of the mountain which Steve's belie- Steve believes may actually lead to the resting place of the princess. Now, let's be clear mm-hmm. that it's Babe that screws up, damn near kills himself, and blows a hole in the mouth. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, it's kind of cool. I like the way it's played because mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: It's, it's what, it, it looks like it's one of those things that Babe has done several times mm-hmm. before, but this time just screwed up.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Also, they... they going through this hole that Babe blew in the side of the mountain. and Instead of the resting place of the princess, they find the mummy of Karras in a remarkable state of preservation. They uh, do note that there's not a lot of stuff in this room mm-hmm. with this mummy. And although the mummy looks amazing, there's nothing in here. This is weird. This is not mm-hmm. what you would normally expect for someone mm-hmm. who's been embalmed and entombed. Well, after the others have retired that night, Dr. Petrie, is, uh, Dr. Petrie of the, the Egyptian uh, Museum, who's gone along with him as well, is making a minute examination of the mummy when he is confronted by George Zuko, garbed mm-hmm. in his priestly robes. Mm-hmm. With a dosage of tana brew, Zuko brings Karras back to life. I love that he, this is what he, he shows him. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's he's a had, beautiful
2: demonstration. And that is a cool scene, where he's, where he's yeah. basically having him hold his wrist there. Yeah. It's great. The tension is great because you yeah. know what's about to happen, but he's got him in perfect position there to, to feel while he's having him feel the mummy's pulse.
1: Yep. Yep. And he just, he just uh, puts a little bit yeah. of the tina juice on uh, the mummy's lips. Yeah. And that's when the pulse picks up its pace. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's really good. And put the, they put the heartbeat on the soundtrack mm. to kind of just make it that much more intense. Yeah.
2: Now this is still the master Jack Pierce at work here at yes. this time on this mummy. And Tom Tyler, I think makes a very good mummy. I like First of all, he's very physically imposing, you know. Yeah. For the and I like uh, I like the fact that they do have him in the same pose that we first saw Karloff as, as in as the mummy. Now, yeah. I think they probably had to make the makeup a little less complex on this, as they did it because in the Karloff film, he was only going to be that way for one scene. Right. So the mummy makeup here is probably a little more practically applied because he's having to use it so much. He's going to have to do so much more movement. But I still think it's it's very well done.
1: Well, the makeup uh, that you see in uh, most of the close-ups, especially in this initial sequence, uh, is basically the same makeup he used on Karloff. From what, mm. from from what uh, from what I've read here, but for a lot of the scenes, they didn't do the full makeup. They did it. They used a, mask. a rubber mask right. on him when he when yeah. there weren't going to be close-ups when it, when the camera when he was going to be you know. At some distance mm. from the camera, they just used a a, a pre-made uh, rubber, mm. rubber mask that they could use over and over again instead mm. of reapplying the makeup yeah. again and again each day. Mm. Uh, another innovation in this is once that mommy starts moving around, they do a really great thing that they never did again, sadly to say— uh, they black out his eyes. In other words, yeah. They they they. Uh, it's it's as if his eyes are just these black holes in his head, mm-hmm. and uh, that's really effective and scary. Very effective. Uh, you can see the way it would have looked without that effect. If you want to mm-hmm. see that, the same some of the same footage is in the movie. You can you can look at the trailer,
3: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and uh, the trailer does not have that special effect in it. So you can kind of see the difference if you want to look at the trailer mm-hmm. for the film and then ver- versus the finished product in the movie itself. Um. Yeah, Tom Tyler is great. This is the only time he played The Mummy. Uh, Lon Chaney Jr. played him in the next Mm -hmm. three films. And uh, between this film and the next, uh, clearly Karras, you know visited uh, <laughs> the smorgasbord a few times
2: yeah caris had to drink away his uh he had found a he had to find a new addiction you know a new addiction other than the <laughs> yeah, i think
1: caris so. was eating his emotions
2: yeah, yeah. that's probably <laughs> what it
1: was his disappointment was showing and you mm-hmm. know it's it, a few too many visits to the hot tub bar and mm-hmm. uh maybe just a few too many visits to the uh, hot dog <laughs> roller in the convenience store down the way
3: <laughs>
1: but the funny okay well tom tyler was a cowboy actor Mm-hmm. Of yeah. course, we, you and I would both, both both best know him as being Captain Marvel in the serial The Adventures Absolutely. of Captain Marvel. yeah. Uh, but he was primarily known as as being a cowboy actor. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is pointed out mm-hmm. in the book, Universal Horrors, that uh, Tom Tyler and uh, Glenn Strange, mm-hmm. and there's another actor, it seems like they were all B-actor, uh, B-Western yeah. actors, yeah. who got rooked into playing monsters in the <laughs> Universal Horror films in the yeah. 40s.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's like...
1: Oh you can uh you can go be a yeah. ranch nat- you can be a ranch yeah. nasty or yeah, yeah. you can get all this makeup put on you <laughs> and stomp around as <laughs> Frankenstein or the mummy or
2: Yeah, that's right, that's right.
1: <laughs> Which I, you know, that's that's kind of amusing. That's awesome. So with just a little bit of that tanna brew on the mummy's lips, we have uh Charis coming back to life, and the resuscitated ancient Egyptian promptly uh hops up and strangles Doctor mm. Petrie to death. So we have our first kill. Yeah. Yeah. And don't don't get to uh, don't get all excited because not there's only like two murders in the film. Yeah, so just yeah, not down. a high body count. Yeah, there's <laughs> uh, there's there's, a, there's an interesting uh, interesting thing we'll get to here in a few minutes when I'll talk about a, a couple of deleted scenes because the, the body count uh, was probably twice what it actually was mm-hmm. before some interesting deletions from the film were made. But plotting to do away with the rest of the unbelievers, Zuko orders his henchmen to place vials of Tana Brew in each of their tents. He's gonna sick the mummy on, him. Mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. like it's like he's putting Scooby Snacks in the tents. To draw the monster in there. Well, Steve's native overseer Ali is the second member of the expedition to fall victim to the mummy. So, uh, so we we get to, we get a native overseer who gets murdered by the mummy, mm-hmm. and of course, in each case, I I, I I love this. I love the detail of you know they they find these they find these people dead and. And their throat, you know, their throats are mm. and There's this, mm. this, you know, this gray dust mm. smeared all over them, and it's like, hmm, you mm. know, <laughs> figuring this out slowly. Solvani is nearly killed by the Tana seeking Karis, who, uh, although he doesn't get Solvani, he uh, grabs the fainted Marta, picks her up, and disappears with her through a hidden passageway in that uh, hole in the mountain,
3: mm-hmm.
1: where his burial, basically where his burial chamber was. It's at this point, yeah. I need to start talking about some of the stuff that got deleted. Yeah, because maybe from that would. Yeah,
2: tell me, because that may explain some oddities about this particular sequence.
1: All right, let's talk about the fact that. And uh, for this, folks, we'll, uh, we'll reference a wonderful book that if you're the mummy obsessed person that I am, you must own. It's called The Mummy Unwrapped Scenes Left on Universal's Cutting Room Floor. Uh, this is a good book, this is worth your time. Mm-hmm. This is a lovely thing. Anyway, what this is, this this delineates specific scenes in each of the four mummy movies from the 40s that got uh, either chopped out of the script and therefore never filmed, or in some cases, there's plenty of evidence that these scenes got photographed, got Mm -hmm, filmed, filmed. Mm -hmm. and then were left out for whatever reason. One of the things in here is that if you're wanting to be harsh about certain aspects of the plot of this film, or maybe just the motivations of the bad guys, it does seem as if George Zuko's character turning on a dime and suddenly going, <laughs> you know, I'm going to hang on to this hot chick. Yeah. <laughs> it, that's It's a pretty quick well, turnaround.
2: Well, it's, basically what you've seen is him instruct Karras, go kill him. Right. He didn't instruct him, you know, kill Jim. the old magician and bring me his hot daughter. You know, it's like they, they what you're that. expecting is what you're used to seeing and, and uh, is, is the, the fact that usually... The mummy's undoing is is the woman, or what causes the mummy right. to turn on his 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 controller is he suddenly finds himself attracted to the girl. That's what you kind of think may be happening here, but they don't really play up that aspect of it. I mean, the, again, the film is is very brief, you know, very brisk, and so we don't get many scenes between the mummy and the girl. But you know, you sort of think that the mummy. Doesn't kill her because he's because he suddenly you know he, uh, takes a hanker to her, but uh, right. but then as soon as he brings it back, you're right. Then suddenly George Zuko does not go does not say, "Hey, what are you doing?" I told you to kill him. Instead, he's like, "Oh, I didn't Good. I didn't <laughs> order in. Thank you for bringing <laughs> bring, yeah, bring yeah, you for <laughs> thank you for bringing me dessert." Here. I
1: didn't know I didn't order an American woman. <laughs> yeah. thank you for that. So, one of the scenes taken out of the film and. It's a lengthy piece. It would have Mm -hmm. it would have been a couple or three minutes in the movie, so you can kind of understand why they may have done it. Is Mm -hmm. that right after the initial murders of Mm -hmm. the initial murder of Doctor Petrie? Mm -hmm. What was going to be right after that Mm -hmm. was Sylvania and his daughter deciding that maybe this is not a safe place and they ought to go back to Cairo. Mm -hmm. In other words, they were thinking about just going back to Cairo and waiting there to see what else happened. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And so there's a scene that's laid out here in uh, the Mummy Unwrapped. That is uh, from the script and from all evidence, this stuff was shot. This sequence was shot and then edited out in the uh, in the final process of, of putting the, to get, put, putting together the finished film. And uh, the, there's a there's a lot of back and forth, but essentially, uh, the upshot of it is is that uh, so we come to it. Banning and Salvani have obviously been talking. Mm-hmm. We see Banning has been is finishing up writing something on a piece of paper and hands it to Salvani. And then Solani goes to his daughter and explains, "Hey, we're going to go." And then she sees what it was. It was written, and it's Banning having written that he's uh, essentially uh, promising to pay the full two thousand dollars that they put into the expedition back to them, regardless of anything that happens, as soon as he possibly can. Okay. And also, they they they're they're, they're one third interest in anything that is found is still valid okay so th- yeah so this causes her to go to banning and say essentially this is the scene where she turns completely
2: i think you're swell right that, yeah 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 yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's a bit more than that because yeah. this is the scene where she really yeah you know this thing that he's done unrequested by either of them show has is proven to her that he is a a good person that he's not somebody who was ever really trying to take Mm -hmm. advantage of her father. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of a back and forth where really they've been packed up and are about to leave. And she goes and talks to banning. It becomes evident in this scene for the first time that the two of them are kind of, uh, as my old chemistry professor would have put it Mm kind of sparking. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, that's when they decide to stay. Mm -hmm. And so it's felt that probably the reason the scene got cut out is that from beginning to end, the same thing, you know, it, mm-hmm. just by cutting it out, they're still staying.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: So it, it takes away some good detail and some good character bits and some yeah, really does interesting make It well, It
2: does make it a little less, ab- it, it would have made it a little less abrupt her right. total about face. It's one of those things where you kind of suspect that the two of them will, you know, have a chemistry and start liking each other, but... The fact she seems very forgiving, you know, that she does really seem to totally, you know, flip, right. flip the switch on him, you know, is is, is it is, it seems a little abrupt in the film, and that scene would have made it feel a little less less right. so, I think.
1: But in the, the the writer of the book, his name is uh, Thomas uh, Faramisco I hope I'm not mispronouncing his name because I love his book. Uh, but he says uh, it's easy to see why this scene was cut. We finally see Karis in action, and then suddenly three or four minutes are invested to see if Sylvani and Marta are going to leave or stay. Too much talking in between mummy murders caused mm-hmm. later mummy movies to suffer. Mm-hmm. So while Savani and Marta are trying to figure out if they're coming or going, we get a peek at a riff uh, taking place between uh, Zuko's character and the beggar character, his main mm-hmm. henchman. Yeah.
2: I was just calling his henchman Tom Baker because I think he looks like <laughs> Tom, looks like Tom, Tom Baker. Tom, well, especially in, uh, was it at, uh Golden Voyage of Yes, Brad, it, yeah. Yes, he looks it like that. Okay,
1: so the two of them are spying on the camp. Uh, while this is all going on and Zuko's care this is where Zuko's character first mentions his quote unquote plan for Marta. That's where it's first mentioned in this deleted scene.
2: Oh okay so okay. by d-
1: by taking that section out, they yeah. take that out too and so you don't have this setup for okay. him you know, they've been watching yeah. the camp obviously yeah. for days and days and over that course of time, that Mr. Zuko has decided hmm. that he wants that damn woman down there.
2: And he's already had the one scene with her that we do see where he first goes to tell her about Banning and Babe, you know, and setting them up to right. be bad guys. So he's already seen her then.
1: Yep. As the writer of this book says, one look at the curvy heroine and it isn't too difficult to imagine what's on Zuko's mind. Ah, yes. The, but disagreement, the disagreement between he and his underlings, such as it is, suggests trouble in the ranks and the possibility that their plans may begin to unravel. So that cut scene sets mm-hmm. up what i it does it doesn't bother me at all because it just seems like a natural outgrowth, but it would have been nice to have that there mm-hmm. to lead you down you know to get that thought in your head before mm-hmm. we get to we get to mm-hmm. the later point of the film
2: mm-hmm. because I had similar thoughts about Peggy Moran to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's you like know, how much can I talk
2: about Peggy without sounding like an old perv? <laughs> <laughs>
1: you're, you're, too, too late. Uh, too late. So too late. Yes. Too late. You're already sounding like a like, well, like a. Well, I'm hoping
2: perv. that I'm hoping that the yeah. listeners won't hear my rapturous sighs every time we've mentioned her name <laughs> there. But uh, yes, uh,
1: well, she's kind of amazing. She only had a she had uh, she made twenty two movies in four mm-hmm. years. And uh, the reason that she didn't make any more movies past uh, 1942 is that uh, she made a couple of movies with director uh, Henry Coster, mm-hmm. and in 1942 they got married, mm-hmm. and she retired. She yeah. started raising a family.
2: She was actually she was actually in the very first Abbott Costello movie. She was yeah she was, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah, and uh, which I think was a. Uh, Oh, God, was it One Night in the Tropics? That doesn't sound right. I can't remember which one it is now. But anyway, whatever it was, it was the first, uh, I think it was the first Emma Costello movie that she was, someone, that was in. Someone will correct us. Yes, yes, is, yes. Uh, but, uh, no, I just I just think she's she's a very, very, very winning uh, very winning on-screen personality, let me oh. put it that way.
1: But before we get uh, completely away from deleted scenes, the, yes. the other, what I consider to be major deleted scene, uh, like I said, we've already had. I, you know, hate hate to be the bearer of bad news. I hope you've already watched this movie. But if you never paid attention to this fact, and I'll be honest, I never think about a body count in these mm. movies in mm. my mm. life. Mm. But uh, once we get to this point, after Petrie and Ollie get killed, mm. that's it. There are no more. You know, no no more heads get crushed. No more throats right. get squished. Yeah. This is it. I'm sorry, there's no heads squished in this movie. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking about the, the mummy's revenge, the Paul Nashie film, and that's where heads get squished. <laughs> I like the head squishing mummies. They're my yeah. favorite. Mummies. Oh,
2: gosh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> the head
1: squishing mummy is the
2: best mummy. Yes. But. Okay, so the does so does oh. her father not get. Does the magician not. Does he not kill the magician in the in that scene? Am I, I thought. I had it in my head that uh, her father. No,
1: no, no. He, that, he, he, that gets, Savani, he gets attacked, but he, he doesn't kill But he, he, survives. he okay.
2: survives. Okay. Okay. I had it in my memory that I thought that he killed him and yeah, then he took at her. The end okay. Of the he's movie. at the end of the movie. He is at the end yeah. of the movie. You're right. Okay. Well, wow. right.
1: Obviously, I need to sit you down and rewatch the movie. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, oh. you know, I've probably seen this movie three times as opposed to God knows how many times you've, you know. <laughs> Missed. Myst- I probably actually I probably I've probably seen it more like four or five times. I would imagine. Oh, now, now not, but still not. we uh, outright
1: lie. But, now we going to lie. I see how it is. Now no one can trust you anymore. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> you're bullshitting. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: okay, okay, okay.
0: It's a pulse beat. This is absurd. It's it's fantastic. In this vial, I have the fluid from nine leaves. Nine tanner leaves, Dr. Petrie. That wouldn't mean anything to you, but what? Now, Dr. Petrie. Why, it's. it's beating faster. He's alive. Let me go! We go! Let me go! Okay, The of the priests of Karnak is fulfilled. Not one of you who try to enter the tomb of Anankh or leave this valley alive.
1: Now, the other really important deleted scene mm-hmm. that there is evidence mm-hmm. was filmed. This is a deleted sequence that was filmed. It would would appear because there are actually stills from steals it. Stills from ah, it. How cool. Okay. Like I said, this changes the body count in the film. Body counts aren't particularly important to me, Mm -hmm. but once you realize that there are only two murders in the movie, Mm -hmm. this scene Mm -hmm. that was eliminated is a shame it was eliminated because it would have doubled the body count.
2: Oh. Okay? Mm
1: -hmm. Now, what it is, after Karis takes Marta from her tent, he brings her to Zuko, who's waiting for them back in the temple. As the mummy places the unconscious heroine on the slab, Zuko gives Karis further instructions. He says... You will return at once to the tombs of our ancient dead, unquote. It is apparent, even in this long shot from the script, Mm -hmm. it is apparent, uh, even in the long shot in the film, that Zuko's mouth is not moving. In other words, it's another line of dialogue that's been overdubbed. We also see him turn his head to his left, which is to the right for us watching Mm -hmm. the screen, as if he'd been distracted. And he was. The two priests who escorted him to the temple at the beginning of the film Yeah. Have reappeared and quickly object to Zuko's desecration. Unfortunately, the editor's scissors have once again robbed us of seeing what would have easily been one of the highlights of the film. The scene involves, and I, I toyed with the idea of printing it out and having you and I just read the thing. Before, oh. but I'm going <laughs> to try dramatic reenactment. Yeah, I'm not, not going to try to dr- dramatically reenact this, but although I would. I'll be I would the, the mummy, which means I don't have to speak. So. Yeah, you be the mummy. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Zuko's character says to the priest as they come come into the room in other words it looks like that's where that edit was Mm. Zuko says return to the temple only the high priest may enter Anaka's tomb you know that the first old priest says we know too that you are defiling the tomb the second priest says you must destroy the girl this is sacrilege the wrath of Isis will fall on our heads Zuko says I will make her my immortal princess Mm. the first old priest says we will not allow this unholy act Zuko says, "I am the High Priest of Karnak," and he turns to Karis. Karis comes up to him. He looks at Karis intently, then at the old priests who are cowering back against the stairs, and then he six Karis on them, and he kills the both of them.
2: Oh, wow! There it is. is. did you right. Delivered. There's a great still here, wow. here, here,
1: in, the, here in the book. Uh, halfway up the stairs, Karis reaches a hand out toward the priest near him. nearest him. The priest loses his balance, falls sideways to the floor camera follows Karis as he goes up after the other priests who reaches the top landing there Karis grabs him by the waist holds him overhead and deliberately dashes him toward the floor camera stays on caris a moment and we hear the scream of the priest and an abrupt ending so we don't know what he did to that one exactly okay he tosses yeah. one off and the other we just hear get killed
2: Now I am perplexed, so I will lead you into maybe your follow-up here. Does the author uh, offer any
1: speculation on why this scene was not used? He says, and I quote from the book, Uh One can only imagine the the words coming to life and Karras's lurching movements as he menacingly pursued his latest victims. And one can ponder the Skinner-Salter library of endless music cues and play the themes over in your oh, mind yeah. envisioning what scores might have been used unfortunately we'll have to be content with what our imaginations can provide as we read pages of dialogue and direction long absent this scene which would have run about a minute and a half is clearly the most fantastic find discovered in the mummy's hand scrapped heap such a truly chilling sequence would not, would have not only added to Karis' screen time but would have doubled the mummy's body count from two to four in the film, when Zuko's character gives Karras his latest instruction from within Ananka's tomb, more continuity errors can be found due to, due to this edit. After a quick cutaway to Karras and then back to Zuko, a close look at the high priest indicates that he is not standing in the same room. He's standing in the lower doorway within the circular chamber. According to the script and the publicity still, this is where Karras has just killed the two old priests. After this slick bit of editing, one has to assume that this exciting double mummy murder was indeed shot and then edited out. The two old priests would have been the mummy's last victims before before Steve and Babe finally put an end to this mayhem, at least in this film. The reason for this cut may have been that the interruption of the two old priests momentarily sidetracked the immediate business at hand, but most likely the scene was deleted because a retake was needed and there was simply not enough time to get it done, whatever the reason it's our loss.
2: Yeah, that second reason would kind of make the most sense, just because I can't think of, I can't imagine even as even the censors of that time, you know, finding the way they describe the scene, finding it anything particularly objectionable, yeah. as or that oh four bodies is too many for a film is too you know i can't see any of that happening that what you said that last thing about possibly something technically
1: Need might have be been
2: wrong with the and they just ran out of time that actually sounds more feasible
1: well remember this film was shot in two weeks
2: exactly so yeah yeah, yeah their time and budget wasn't it wasn't a whole lot to play with there so uh that could be the case
1: regardless um my god wouldn't i love to see a uh, version of this uh, film with that sequence in
2: oh, it? oh we all would well, wow. and speaking of budget, by the way, let's go ahead and just say real quick about the sets here. Oh, yeah. I know that that incredible, like, the steps, the outside of the temple, the incredible, like, steps that lead up to the temple. I mean, you know, if you know anything about these films, as soon as you watch them, you know, okay, I know they didn't build that for this film. I know that is from a film called The Green Hell. Which yeah, it's I, a J-
1: James, James Whale film.
2: film. I didn't know if the interiors were from that film as well or if it's just that exterior.
1: Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. The exterior... Uh, or is you know, that from something? The exterior, I think, is a...
2: Was that something that was already? In, I can't.
1: I can't remember if the exterior was from Green Hill, but the interiors—that really elaborate room mm. where Ananka's tomb is—that's definitely from Green Hill.
2: Okay, okay. I was okay. I was being. I was because I love. I mean, I love that interior, but man, that exterior with those great long yeah. steps yeah. and there's just a great uh, 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 a bit of scenery. And uh, and I was figuring it had to be recycled from some things. It may not be from the Green Hell, but you're right. But the interior of temple is is uh, is very is is really nice, and I like the set very much.
1: Uh, Yeah, it was. It was uh, that set was borrowed slash used a second Mm -hmm. time uh, by this film. And uh, from what I've heard about the green, about Green Hell, I've never seen Green Hell. Mm, yeah. uh, it was very poorly received when it came out in '39. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one that I probably want to see just because I'd like to see what you know what these things were put to. Plus, it's got yeah. Joan Bennett. So mm-hmm, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll watch Joan Bennett. Oh yeah. Uh, but um, I, I need to one day find a copy of uh, Green Hell. I think it shows up on Turner Classic Movies every now and then. So I need mm-hmm. to finally check that out just to see what these sets were originally mm-hmm. built for. Mm-hmm. Ah, but now yes. Let's get back to the plot. Yeah. So, so we don't get the two priests murdered, which is a real shame. When you, mm-hmm. when you, you know, if, if I know. No, no matter what, you like the film, old priest would, murdered. It's like yeah, that. that's something. I the old Egyptian priest getting thrown around and, and probably <laughs> see, my, in my imagination, the one that we don't see, is, he getting his head crushed.
2: That's yeah, just, getting his head crushed. He yeah. is. That's,
1: that's, that's the way. That's the way it's got to be for me.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, anyway, so Silvani is nearly killed by the Tana, the Tanna seeking Karis. He carries Mardo away. Uh, splitting up in two directions, Steve and Babe search for the mummy. In a wonderful set piece, Karis enters the altar room with Marta in his arms, where, where Zuko waits for them. This is where we have the deleted mm-hmm. scene.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: as a reorchestrated cue from Son of Frankenstein plays ominously on the soundtrack, the camera gradually reveals the full scope of the magnificent decorated set, which was built yeah. for a green hell, uh, it's, uh, with Marta as his captive. Zuko forsakes his mission and prepares an injection of the immortalizing Tanna fluid for himself mm. and the young woman. Uh, babe arrives in the nick of time and engages the high priest in a gun battle. Riddled with bullets. bullets it's not really
2: a gun battle. It's more like I point the gun, shoot, and get you you. <laughs> you go down. <laughs> well,
1: I, I, I well do. not
2: really because because uh, there, Zuko does it, so, he does yeah. have the one the pistol hidden in his yeah. in his sleeve. So yes, it is a so something. Because I'm babe, get about. About. Uh, babe gets shot. He does. Babe gets shot as well.
1: Uh, I would like to point out that when uh, uh, this this description of the film does leave out that detail that before they they split up and go and go hunting for the mummy, some of the uh, some of Zuko's henchmen attack the uh, attack the camp to try to kill Banning and Babe, mm-hmm. and uh, that's when Babe just pulls yeah. that gun and blows yeah. that dude away, yeah. and the yeah. others run away because they realize oh shit they got guns. Yeah. So we get Babe uh, riddling. Zuko with bullets.
2: And Zuko has a great death. I mean, yeah. I his death is fantastic.
1: Oh yeah, he he he's sent hurtling down the uh, temple steps. A, it really is a great death. Yeah, that stunt man got paid. Oh, for that, he did. Uh, no, I mean. Yes, absolutely. Well, discovering the entrance way to the temple through a tunnel, Steve frees Marta and attempts to escape with her, but finds their path blocked by the mummy. Hmm. The archaeologist crashes a flaming urn over Karis, destroying him before he can obtain an overdose of the mind bending brew. And I love this because because. Once he knows what it is, Banning throws that mm. vial of tana fluid on the ground, and the mummy just f- gets down on the ground and is starting to lick that stuff stuff off the stones. I'm glad you that's love a, it
2: because that that's to a, me is, that's an addict. <laughs> yeah, that's an addict. I guess like I said to me, it's it's not the not the most dramatic finish for a for a movie monster. I mean that's nope, it's, nope, it's that, one because
1: that's where he burns.
2: I mean, oh no! There. Well, it's it's yeah, it's it's it, like I said it, it 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 does make it does make sense that he is the foremost in the mummy's mind is yeah. to get to that like an addict and we've already made you're right so I, I i get that it's just you know lying on his face lapping up fluid while he gets you know basically gets a you know fire thrown on his back and burn up is like saying like ah that's not the most Thrilling ending for a movie <laughs> monster, so I guess that's one one thing where this movie kind of disappoints me on that whole finale there, you know. But the build up to it is very nice, you know. So I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's that, that's one thing I was thinking like it could have been a little more exciting than that.
1: Well, I will grant you that I would have preferred the the mummy, you know, being caught on fire while walking. Yes, something it. Yeah, something even that, that would have been, been something really more, amazing. Like, yes, yeah. but uh, I still do love the idea. I do love the idea that you know, much mm. if, if they want to press that idea mm. home of this mm. Tanafluid being something mm. that is like this, per, like this creature's drug. Mm-hmm. Then you know that scene of him getting yeah. down on the ground to get at it <laughs> is definitely a, a, an excellent way of showing that. So after all this is over and Karis is torched. Uh, the high priest is dead meat. Uh, they, they do track down the tomb of Ananka, and uh, they prepare to return to America with its treasure trove of... Riches. Uh, mm-hmm. and it's got a great little ending there. Mm-hmm. It's a nice mm-hmm. happy ending where it appears that uh, Marta and Banning are gonna mm-hmm. end up getting married.
2: Mm-hmm. We've successfully desecrated the tomb of ancient and <laughs> yes. <to> removed their <laughs> no,
1: wait, we have a little, let, let, let's overlook. Let's the, not the, go the, too deeply
2: into that. Yeah. We're,
1: we're talking about the nineteen forties uh, no, yeah, and yeah, yeah. yes, of yes. course there was much there's much to be said for the fact that <laughs> Westerners did just yeah. Destroy big chunks of Egypt, <laughs> cart it off to their own lands. This is true. It's, it's not a pleasant bit, bit of archaeological history. Let's put it that way. <sighs> well, you brought the room down. Thanks, Troy.
2: <sighs> well, you know it had to be said. It not, had to yeah, be you, said. you're, you're it, right. It, ended, you it
1: does have to be said. It's but, it's the kind of thing that is. That's why these kind of stories, hmm. I think, almost always they either have to be very, very, very rewritten. Or they have to be period pieces.
2: But we also, you know, uh, we have to say, like, uh, you know, do they get off scot-free? Do they get off, you know, well, do they the see we'll have we to, us, uh, yeah, we'll have to see what happens the next time the sequel comes up. Maybe, maybe there is a price to be paid for uh, for desecrating the, the ancient tombs.
1: Well, now, let's, uh, now that we've gone through the, the synopsis, mm-hmm. I have a, yes. a lot of other things to say about the movie, but mm-hmm. I would just like to ask you, off of, you know, just mm-hmm. just now that we've kind of talked about uh, the full run of the plot mm-hmm. uh this is a, a movie that's less than 70 minutes long it's uh, i think 67 minutes long mm-hmm. it's very fast mm-hmm. uh it plays and a lot of times it plays a good bit like uh, a republic serial. Mm-hmm. uh it's, it, there's a hell, hell hell man there's a bar fight mm-hmm. there's a a decent amount of of humor whether you find it funny mm-hmm. or not i mm-hmm. i find i find it Amusing, if not necessarily yeah, yeah, funny.
2: Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. I don't find it. Yeah, I, I think the scenes work. It's
1: yeah. got likable hero.
2: Very likable cast. Yeah. Uh, Good great,
1: great, great villains.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Or actually, a great villain, and then some yeah. pretty decent henchmen. Yeah. I like the action. Uh, it, it is. It is. As I said early on, when we started talking about this film <laughs> uh, at, the, at mm-hmm. the top of the show, I think mm-hmm. it's just. It has just enough creepy uh, mm-hmm. atmosphere. Just enough to turn things from the uh, feeling of an archaeological adventure into something with a little bit more scare intent. Mm-hmm. And I think that it works effectively. I think that once we're inside those um, burial chambers, the uh, the atmosphere and the, the feeling of uh, creepiness does inch up appreciably. And uh, mm-hmm. there, there is some wonder. They do add some menace to things when uh, you know we have that mummy murdering people.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, we can go on all day long about how I wish the deleted scene sure. we talked about existed and wasn't the film. right? But, as it stands, as it stands, mm-hmm. I still really enjoy this film. Mm-hmm. Is it my favorite mommy movie? Of mm-hmm. course not. Mm-hmm. No. The the 59 film from Hammer and the mm-hmm. 32 film from uh, Universal are better than it. And, well, let's be blunt, so is uh, Nash's mommy yes, film I agree from 74. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah,
2: those are all better films, I think.
1: Or 73, I should say. Mm-hmm. But um, I think those are better films than this, you know, in in Mm. most cases by far. But as exactly what this was intended to be, Mm. this is great. I mean, this is Mm. precisely what you want in this type of film. Mm. And maybe I can say that Mm. because this movie built the template. This was the first of Mm. these because this isn't, like I say, it isn't a sequel to the 32 mm. film. This is breaking, to a large degree, mm. don't laugh, breaking new ground. This is creating a I, new template yeah. that they would then use three more times.
2: Yeah. No, I would I would, I would agree with it. Now, it, it unfortunately also built a template for a film that I know you and I don't think too highly of, The Mummy Films by, uh, what's his name, is his son? Uh, Stephen Summers, yeah. Stephen Summers, yeah. Uh, um, but I think we can see the beginnings even here of why... The mummy films, more than any other, I think, of the classic monsters, lends itself more to action and adventure than necessarily yeah. creepiness and and and, and, yeah. and mood and, and menace and horror. You know, because uh, you in that Egyptian setting there, uh, which carries with it, uh, you know, you you've got the whole tomb well, it's, exploring it's alien, it's and alien whole,
1: territory. Yeah, it's, it's a foreign land. It's it's mm-hmm. a diff- it's a different culture, mm-hmm. and no matter what and, you want to say about the other Universal horror movies. Uh, until you get to Creature from the Black Lagoon, which mm-hmm. takes place in the Amazon, yeah. uh, the characters in those stories are European, and right. the story is taking place in Europe. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah,
2: so I think it's 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 a natural, I think, to do with that creature to take it and take it more into that aspect, you know, where you where you make the films as much about that kind of thing, you know, much more as much about uh, suspense and action, and kind of add that serial kind of feeling, like we yeah. talked about, to it. So, um, I, I, look, I, I do, and I do, I do enjoy the film. I don't have any animosity towards this film at all. I mean, it's, it's, it's not one of my personal favorites. It's not one that I, I find myself going back too much, but even just, I think it was last October, I actually took a spin through all four of the films for the first time in years. And, and, uh, you know, and, and, I, and, uh, I do definitely fun, think fun, that there's a, a to, trip, there's a lot to, there's a lot to enjoy about him. I do. I think that, and I, I enjoy this film. I mean, I'm sure that at some point I, I mean, I'll watch again and always, always, uh, uh, get a pleasure out of it and it was good to watch it this time for the first time thinking about it of how I would talk about it for a podcast it made me look even deeper into things and that was the first time that i really thought about what we've talked about about how really it uh, influential the film is uh and, and and how it how much it did set into place for for all the films that came came after it
1: yeah this is um primarily a fun movie mm-hmm. that that's how i look upon this uh if i want uh, something that's a bit more atmospheric in the 1940s from Universal, mm-hmm. I'm going to go to something. Uh, there's, I think, there's more atmosphere in the Wolfman, do you sure. There's yeah. definitely more a- atmosphere in um, the Frankenstein sequels,
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: but this is one that, because of its setting, because of it being that you know, mm-hmm. you know, strangers in a foreign land yeah. kind of thing, that is just part and parcel of why the story is um, appealing on certain mm-hmm. levels. Mm-hmm. It draws me back to it again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, I was jo- I was joyful, of course, when I was able to finally see these in high definition. When mm-hmm. I was able
2: to, oh, they look wonderful. Yeah, they look great. And I will I will look forward to as we get to them over this series. You know, to to because I'm thinking about them this way, and I never have before. It'll be interesting to see for me personally once I've seen them all how I rank them together. Like which ends up being my favorite, my least favorite, because I never have thought about them even last year when I was watching them all pretty close together, yeah. and and last October when I did, I'd never really compared them much to one another in terms of what it won, which ones I thought were the best, and I don't want to do that now until I've seen them all again in, in this way that we're doing this series. So. Well, that's going
1: to take some time. Oh, I know.
2: <laughs> it is. Yes. <laughs> so in a couple of years, I'll let you know what I what I think. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: I mean, it's no secret that most people who enjoy these films think of this one as the best of the
2: And that's what I'm assuming. That the, I mean, this one I'm guessing will be my response, too, but yeah it probably I guess what I'm saying is it'd probably be more interesting to to me to see how I rank two three and four you know how I rank those as far as because this probably will be the, the 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 turn out to be the best of the series
1: um you mentioned earlier I thought this was a neat detail uh that Jack Pierce did do the uh, did, did do the makeup for this, mm-hmm. uh, and the close-ups. That wonderful makeup is still mm-hmm. Jack Pierce mm-hmm. doing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jack Pierce once described the uh, the look of the makeup for the mummy's face as uh, a badly wrinkled hippopotamus. <laughs> <laughs> and as soon, as soon as I read that, I thought, "Oh my God! I'll never get that image out of my head."
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> One of the things we um, we talked about. I, I just wanted to say this is um apparently the uh first role that uh George Zuko played this kind of villain in. This is the first, this was the starting point.
2: Oh, okay. Uh,
1: because uh, to be honest, he was in a lot more oh, sure. you know, yeah. big yeah. pictures, A pictures yeah. instead of B pictures. He was in a lot more A pictures than he was in B pictures, but honestly he's now he's an immortal actor because of all those B movies. Mm-hmm. The B movie yeah. the B horror movies, honestly. Yeah. That he did, I thought it was interesting. Now, this is something that I noticed long before I I read enough detail to figure this out. Uh, but it is always it's always one of those things that as soon as uh, as soon as I see George Zuko in a film now, I just start looking for it. Which is that uh, he's a vet- he was a veteran of World War One, mm. and he was injured in World War One, and he almost lost his right arm. Okay. and uh, if you watch him in every movie, he has very limited use of his right arm, mm. and he's he's uh, the the two. The two or three fingers, the not not the not his index finger, but mm. the other fingers, are deformed because of this injury. Ah. And if you watch really carefully, you can see how the how he's not very that. careful to make sure that you. That he's holding his hand and his arm in such a way so that that's not evident in every shot. Wow. As a matter of fact, it's okay. rare, It's rarely evident. Okay. Uh, but now, of course, as soon as I learned that a few years ago, now every time I watch George Zuko in any film whatsoever, I'm I'm trying really hard to like look look for, <laughs> look at his right hand. <laughs> and sometimes I'll admit I distract myself by doing that. <laughs> And kind of have to back the film up because I'm paying more attention to to the blocking of the actors trying to hide that deformity yeah. than I am anything else. Um, it's you know it's it's similar mm. it's similar to when you learn the thing about the uh, the missing fingers of, on James Doohan's right hand in, in Star Trek. Right,
2: right. Because
1: uh, you know Scotty, you know if you you. You can only spot it a few times mm-hmm. in all the episodes of Star Trek. Yeah. but he was missing those those last two fingers on his right hand, and it's it's something they did. They were very careful and very smart about hiding, but occasionally you can tell. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, Harold Lloyd. I did you know about Did you know about Harold Lloyd? Oh on no, his, his yes on one of I want to say it's his right hand, I believe. Uh, was he had fingers? He had parts of I think it was his thumb and one of his fingers. I think missing from, and he wore a glove.
1: Oh, that's right and
2: of course those films have black and white that yeah. you know and, and of course now in the magic of high definition you now can you can, see, you that, can yeah. see but it's still not real I mean you have to know or I didn't I would have never noticed it until it was until my brother actually told me about it and I started watching it but then once you see it, you realize how many things he does with his left hand how many when it comes to yeah. to manipulating or a lot of actions he does more with his left hand than his right but uh, yeah,
1: interesting yeah. well George Zuko was a stage actor. Uh, at uh, in it, early in his career and was really well received. He was apparently great on the stage. Mm. As a matter of fact, he came to bi- to high prominence. Uh, Is a huge success in James Wells' uh, uh, stage play of *Journey's End*.
2: Mm. Okay.
1: And I thought it was interesting that that's that was his first big success, and then mm. in this film where he's where he's doing his first like B movie character role, he's he's playing the villain mm. and u- reusing sets from a James Well <laughs> film. I thought that <laughs> yeah, was amusing. That's cool. Uh, Zuko's first film was actually after The Thin Man, the second Thin oh, Man. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but, of course, a lot of people may, if you're going to remember Zuko, and it's not one of these B uh, films, yeah. he played Moriarty against Basil Rathbone's Sherlock Holmes in the 1939 Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and uh, that is, well, of course, you know, he's great He's great mm-hmm. in the role. As soon mm-hmm. as you say that, you're like, yeah, he'd be a perfect Moriarty. Yeah, and would. check out the film, because, yeah, yeah he is. So. I will say that uh, there's a great quote in uh, one of these books where mm-hmm. the, the, the statement is made is made that uh, George Zuko is one of the few actors who can upstage a Universal monster.
3: <laughs>
1: in a large in a large yeah. way, it, it, there's a there's a there's a there's a large argument to be made that uh, the real Universal monster in this movie is George Zuko's villainous character, mm-hmm. uh, his uh, suddenly so, so suddenly uh, horny, mad
3: <laughs> high priest.
1: <laughs> Uh, became the the template for every you know suddenly horny mad high priest <laughs> to come after him in
2: these films it's like it's not enough you have gone mad man do you have to be horny as well it's, like, <laughs> it's you say something that, that I had not thought about but uh really isn't that the case with this whole mummy series is that your central character really more is or your central antagonist in is really more the, the
1: high priest yeah. the
2: high priest not the mummy and that is kind of a precursor to hammer's frankenstein series where yes. the focal character is in focal villain is is really dr frankenstein yes than the mummy
1: you, you actually that's that's where i was going to go oh which well is that, sorry i no no, no, that, no that, that, that's <laughs> great that's great uh you know stupid minds think alike. <laughs> yes, yes we're nothing if not two pair of idiots. mad <laughs> horny a minds, pair, think a think a pair of idiots yeah, right. yes but that yeah you're right that's always the thing that i love the most about uh, the hammer frankenstein series Besides, you know, Cushing being as, mm. as amazing in that role as he always was, mm. uh, I do love the fact that the focus of the film is actually Frankenstein, the mm-hmm. doctor, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. that's that's something that um, he's you know he's the master manipulator, he's the man with the plan, he's mm. the guy doing things, and that is very much the high priest character mm-hmm. in these in these mummy movies, and of course that is something that is carried over directly into Hammer's nineteen fifty nine mummy movie Mm -hmm. and it's one of the things that I think makes it fantastic because you have this very suave Egyptian fellow in a fez who's very threatening Mm -hmm. and very uh, deliberate in his Mm -hmm. statements Mm -hmm. and he can stand there in front of the police and claim to be completely innocent because he's certainly not the one ripping doors off their hinges and tearing Mm -hmm. people's heads off Mm -hmm. so
2: it's a smart way to go with the series when you realize that you know your monster is, for the most part, this kind of golem-like figure that's going to be dormant much of the time and and inexpressive in a lot of ways, and you know, and if you're going to kind of hold it back for those special moments, and you've got to have something else, yeah, to keep the menace kind of going through through the the main course of the film.
1: Although I will say that in the Hammer film, in the fifty nine film. Uh, Christopher Lee does a lot with his eyes in that movie.
2: And that's another key to bringing across an effective mummy. We talked about what they did with Tom Tyler's eyes in this film that made him more menacing. Uh, Lee sells the mummy so much with what he does with his eyes that makes him truly a frightening, intense figure. Yeah,
1: yeah. He de- that's that's true. I mean, now we're talking about the fifty nine film briefly, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, that that's mm-hmm. one of the things that makes that film really, really effective. Yeah, is not just uh, that Peter Cushing makes a, a great you know a, a great good guy character mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. film, uh, but Lee, who, you know, past a certain point has no way to deliver dialogue. Mm-hmm. He gets across a lot with his body language, with body language, and with his eyes.
2: And he manages to move quickly and power and powerfully yes. enough to without while still. You know, not not seeming unrealistic to the monster, but he just conveys a lot, a certain speed that you don't get from most and mummies power. And, so, and power. Yeah, and he just he just comes strength, across yeah. as a real, yeah, really threatening, powerful figure. So. Yeah,
1: yeah, I agree. Um, I will say that um, one of the things about this film, if you think about this film as them thinking they're going to present the film in a certain way, and then deciding during the editing process that maybe they need to soften it a little mm-hmm. i'm wondering you know because I, I, we, we've talked about them adding that one line of dialogue to pretend that that's it's not <laughs> yeah, a real treat pistol, guy, yeah, yeah, treat not, pistol not a real pistol that she's wa- waving mm-hmm. around i'm wondering if it was in the process of the editing or that they realized that they were really going to be aiming these at a younger audience mm-hmm. than the, the the films they've made in previous years and that might account for some of the thing is getting edited out as well. Yeah, uh, that's that's yeah. one thing that, uh, that the author yeah. of the, the Mummy Unwrapped didn't didn't possibly take into account, which is I don't know what the thought process was for who the primary audience for these films was going to be, because this is the starting point really for yeah. that. Because yeah, because House of Seven Gables is not a film that's aimed at kids. No,
2: no, they they make here they're making the film shorter enough to fit with double bills and probably starting to use them as matinee fair probably which was really aimed at kids so uh, yeah in this case kids uh, the trick of this gun is I pointed at you and you're dead
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but I would I would just say that uh, it, I I think there's some evidence here that if they were going to start aiming these films at kids they weren't thinking down that road when they when they wrote this movie mm, possibly when they shot it and the reason mm. for that I, that I say that is the mummy the monster don't show up until halfway through the movie
3: yeah
2: yeah.
1: And that's death for a kid audience.
2: Very much so, yeah.
1: So that, you know, once again, who knows? Mm. One way or another, we don't know exactly what the thought process was in the editing mm. or what they may have been thinking during the process and during the production. So
2: I think in the later films, don't we start... I think all the films, I know we see a reuse of a lot of footage. Don't we probably begin to see the appearance of the mummy much quicker, much earlier in yes. the films, I believe? Yes. So, yeah.
1: Well, I mean, you know, the next three films, even... Um, Maybe not all three of them. Now, now my memory is a bit fuzzy, but I will say that I think that most of them start off with a bit of a flashback framing mm-hmm. setup that gives mm-hmm. you a bit of mummy action right yeah. at the top of the film, yeah.
2: which would have worked for kids at that time because they would wouldn't have seen the film before. You know, the, yeah. it, it wouldn't have been seeing that either. Probably not even on TV yet or anything, and seeing those. In the, and they only had seen them when they were out, and it had been probably months and months since the last uh, mummy fix they got so it probably wouldn't hurt them at all. To, they no. wouldn't be saying like, oh, I've seen this before. They'd be just going, yeah, it's the mummy.
1: Well, something else i like to point out is that I like the um, the way the way the film is set up. We have the uh, prelude section which mm-hmm. introduces the, the bad guy and the creature mm-hmm. and the rules mm-hmm. and then we meet our heroes and then for a very long stretch of the movie we're just with our heroes mm-hmm. primarily and mm-hmm. that's really smart script writing because We're watching these characters getting to know them, and then it's almost like we're along on that expedition. It's almost Mm -hmm. as if we're following as the audience. We're part of it, Mm -hmm. and I think that's really just really smart script writing to bring us as the audience into Mm -hmm. the story just a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's something that uh, you know, once again, talking about possibly aiming it at at a juvenile audience, that's something that would really appeal to kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the idea of being along on, you know, feeling like you're part of it to a degree. So mm-hmm. when we all wrap, when we wrap this all up, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have to say I'll just, I'll just tell you up front uh, I I I've always rated this film about a seven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think it's uh, probably to to in most tangible ways mm-hmm. it's probably the best of the four of these mm-hmm. mummy films. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's I don't think it's the best of the universal horrors from this decade.
3: Mm. Mm. Uh, I think
1: there are better films, Mm. but I do think it's solid. Mm. Uh, it's flaws are, uh, in my opinion, minor. It hits most of the targets it aims at. It's Mm. fun. It's fast. And it's appropriately creepy and has just enough Mm. grit Mm. to make it, uh, feel like the kind of thing I want from a forties horror film. Mm. So a seven out of 10 for me. What about Mm. you? I would
2: give it a six. Okay. And, um, and I, I, like I said, I I, I do enjoy the movie. Um, again, not one that I return to that much, but uh, but I never find myself when I see it. I mean, it I it, I don't get bored with it. I enjoy what's going on. I, I like the cast. I I think the the mummy is is effectively done. Um,
1: great. I still love the makeup. The makeup.
2: The is, makeup is very good. I I kind of I do wish that Tom Tyler had played him more honestly. And yeah. I, that's I wish yeah. that he had uh, continued to play him. So and and I think that. I would actually consider it uh you, you probably didn't expect me to say this but I would consider it an essential universal film.
1: Oh, yes, I would because
2: yes, yeah. of what we've talked about, because of its importance. Yeah. Because of what of, of what of what it sets what, up. What yeah, sets up for future films, the whole yeah. what it b- really sets the template for the mummy. I would say if you're looking to, you know, or essential classic monster film if you're looking to, you know, someone who's wanting to find out about these creatures you know what people loved about and what made them unique and interesting and just get into that whole pantheon then I, I think that this film is one that they need to see well
1: so. oh, I agree I think I mean, it's almost 80 years later mm-hmm. you know if but somebody makes a mummy film, they're stealing something from this movie. Yeah. Whether they yeah. know they're stealing right. it from this movie or not, right. they're taking it from something that took mm-hmm. it from this.
2: Cuz you're right, the first mummy movie is pretty much Dracula. <laughs> you know it is. Yeah. It's just a remake of Dracula. So yeah. Yeah,
1: and you don't you don't have I mean you have, you know, Egyptian, you know, you have, you have Egyptian trappings and yeah. you have you yeah. know, Egyptian character names and mm-hmm. and but you do not get all of the things that this movie and its sequels mm-hmm. puts in place for future mummy movies. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah, okay. So I I would agree uh, that uh, you're you're close to being right. Seven, <laughs> the right number. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's
2: he's he's thinks there's hope for me yet, folks. That's there's there's
1: says, right? there's a there's a smidge <laughs> smidge of hope. We'll we'll get you trained up right in mummy cinema. I swear to you that we will. All right, folks. Well, uh, hold on just a moment. We'll take a, a brief break. Come back. Let you know what we're gonna do next, and uh, then send you on your way
4: for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. All right, fellas, here's your story.
0: Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And we cannot keep this a secret any longer.
1: Wait, Captain. I have found evidence of intelligent beings on this planet. Look to the skies. It's the Bee Movie Cookbook. Menus inspired by 15 of your favorite Bee Movies from the 1950s. With teenage werewolves, blobs, and
4: enough cheese for everyone. When we return to our planet, the High Court may well sentence you to torture. But until then, we've got Ed Wood and Vincent Price. There'll be
0: food and drink and ghosts, and perhaps even a few murders. You're all invited.
1: So impress your friends with dinner and a movie with the B-Movie Cookbook. We've got you covered. Get your copy today at bmoviecookbook.com. That's
4: bmoviecookbook.com. Let me see that book. I am interested to see what sways your mind so heavily. Sure thing. Just visit Bmoviecookbook.com.
1: All right. Uh, thank you once again for tuning in and listening to us talk about uh, yet another universal horror film from the 1940s. Uh, this is one that we really enjoy. The Mummy's Hand is a good film. Uh, Troy doesn't love it properly, but he's (laughs) close, he's very, very close. Uh, we'll just need, um,
2: He's trying to get me to drink the Tanna Leaf Kool Aid. No, not yet. <laughs>
1: you, be, you know, honestly, that's a great. That's a great. We need to. I need to come up with a drink. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just, just, just some kind of mixed drink called tenafluid. Tana Fluid.
2: Tana <laughs> Fluid. Uh,
1: yes, yes. If this if this were Cinema Psyops, we would now be asking the listeners to come up with some kind of image to conjure up the Tanna Fluid mixed yeah. drink. And just what the hell would it look like? Because on screen, I got to say, it looks kind of milky. That's weird. Yeah, it does. It's. I don't know about that. Yeah. Not a white Russian kind of guy. No, no, me But let us clue you in as to what Troy and I will be bringing to you uh, both here on the Bloody Pit and also over on the Cast feed. Coming up soon, uh, let's see, in uh, October, Troy and I are going to be stepping outside of our regular wheelhouse. We're going to be doing a 21st century film, mm. a Beyond Nashy episode. We're going to focus in on a film we should have watched years ago. I think it's almost uh, eight or nine years old at this point. Mm a Spanish film called either A Game of Werewolves or Attack of the Werewolves, depending mm-hmm. on where you find your copy of the film. Yep. It's a movie that we've been talk, uh, the, You know, Court Psyops recently reminded <laughs> us of it uh, on the Nashi cast a couple of months ago. And uh, he's, in a, in a way, I feel kind of shamed that we haven't stepped
2: I up. I know as much as people have talked about this film and how, how, yep. how entertaining it's supposed to be. Yep.
1: Can't wait to see it. And we'll, Same be, here. we'll be seeing it soon. And so over on the Nashi cast feed uh, here in, uh, in October... I mm. do believe yeah. you will uh, hear from us uh, talking about that werewolf film, and we will uh, see, what we, uh, see what we see. What we see because this will be a first time viewing for both of us. Yep. But the next time that we talk together here on the Bloody Pit, Troy and I will be doing another Universal horror film, and the next one up on the list is the In. Mm. Uh, I, should, I should I should say it properly. It's Invisible Woman, mm-hmm. which is the third Invisible. Man? Okay, hold on. <laughs> Invisible, I just, they, yeah,
2: the, it's a being film, Invisible. Okay,
1: so it's the second sequel yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> to The
1: Invisible Man. How's yeah, that? Yeah. That's, I, that's I, I, good. I like that, yeah. Yes. So, uh, and so,
2: I've not seen it. I have to admit, I've never seen oh, it. Oh, wow, since. okay. Sorry.
1: Well, it's been, it's been years and years since I've seen it. But mm-hmm. uh, I remember it being, I'm going to warn you, I, mean, I remember it being quite a step down.
2: I don't think it's well thought of from what I've gathered. Yeah, because you
1: know, they, they, uh, they started deciding that maybe they needed to try comedy just a little bit more mm-hmm. than was maybe... Yeah. Advisable. Mm-hmm. So please and,
2: tell me it's not Uno O'Connor playing the Invisible Woman.
1: No, no. Okay. It's actually uh who is the lady who um Virginia Bruce. Oh, so uh, okay. you will not be uh disappointed mm-hmm. in uh both the, the talent level mm. and the, the fact that uh, her shapeliness is played up on screen
3: uh.
2: regardless of her invisibility. So of course.
1: Be, be, be aware of that. I mean, mm. we, if, we're, if we're not going to be sexist, we're just not the 1940s. So
2: <laughs> I'm sure that's how they sold the film. I'm sure the, the the film guy, you know, they're trying to sell this film and they're thinking, well, I would make a film about an invisible woman people can't see her. That makes no sense because, well, we're still going to show her curves. So, okay, <laughs> yeah. well, in that case,
3: yeah.
1: you we're, know, we're gonna, run
2: we're, go with it, boys. We're, we're going to
1: find a way to show the fact that she's <laughs> that she's got big bazoom. (laughs) 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 yes sexism in the 40s they go hand in hand just like just like cigarettes and lung cancer yes (laughs) yes indeed so uh, the next time troy and i talk together here probably be uh, it's gonna be in november we will uh talk to you about invisible woman
2: okay
1: which uh actually is our last 1940 movie cool So we will finally break away from 1940. That'll be our last film in 1940. We'll finally advance to the year 1941 with the following show in this series, and I will lose my mind. I may actually pop the cork on champagne.
2: We hope you're enjoying this series, folks, because if you aren't, it's going to be going on. Or if you need to tell us. If you're not, tell us, stop, stop, because this series is going to go on a long time. A
1: long time. We were just looking over the list and trying to decide, oh, my Lord. I mean, because 1941 looks great. Mm Mm-hmm. And 42 looks very interesting,
2: Mm. and then things get really weird. But the alternative was we were going to tackle all the Bowery Boys films in chronological order. So, you know, I think between the two, we made Uh, the right decision, I believe. I think
1: think you may have been talking to someone else. (laughs) That is not something I was going to ever agree to.
2: (laughs) No, me either, me either.
1: Oh, my goodness, no. Anyway, folks, thank you once again for joining us and checking us out. Thanks mm-hmm. for downloading and listening. We are always happy to have you here. It's great if you want to get in touch with us to give us your thoughts on either this film, the next film, or any film that we're planning to cover or have covered in the past, please drop us a line. The email address is... Na- uh, I'm sorry. Not she can
2: <laughs> Not for this show.
1: Uh whoa! It's the bloody pit at gmail.com There's also a Facebook page. You can join us over there. Drop us a line there. Ask us any questions. Point out our foibles. Uh, now the make Facebook
2: page is for though is for Nashicast, right? You don't. Oh have,
1: there's a Nashicast. There's a bloody pit. Page you do have well. a bloody
2: pit page. Oh yeah, okay. of course. I, God, where have I been? I don't I say have Sorry. no idea. As he if doesn't tell me anything, folks. It's almost yeah. as
1: if you're a non-participant.
2: You're merchandising you know? the stuff behind my back, aren't you? I bet there's a whole <laughs> line of bloody yes. pit and Nashicast merchandise you haven't even told me about. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I've, I've been trying. It's been very hard to keep pictures of the bobbleheads he's the
2: here, colonel so. tom parker i'm the elvis and just in case you're wondering about the <laughs> oh, dynamic here so
1: Jesus christ <laughs> <laughs> you're the fucking Elvis. no you <laughs> are not <laughs> Jeez, <'cause>. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> okay anyway folks thank you again for being here right. i am rod barnett i'm troy Gwynn. and we'll talk to you again soon
2: thank you very much